Welcome everyone, I'm Gary McKillips and this is Sports Across the Board. With us today is Dave Cohen. Dave was here earlier this year. He's a former Yankee play-by-play -play broadcaster, did considerable work for ESPN over the years, and was the anchor and producer for the syndicated Costas Coast to Coast program featuring his fellow Syracuse alum, Bob Costas. He's covered just about every sport from football to basketball to boxing, wrestling, lacrosse, Hey, maybe you've even done bullfighting, Dave. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway. No bullfighting, no. but I did do uh, hockey and track and field and rowing and lacrosse and one-time women's field hockey. That was enough. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The joys of being a, a freelancer and doing a lot of different things. So that's yeah. great. Well, welcome back to the show. We uh, have a lot to talk about, as usual. Why don't we lead off with the, the hottest story going right now, and that's the snub of Florida State uh, in the Final Four. W what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I really, really have a big problem with it. I believe that sports is about a team when it's a team sport like football. And uh, if you go 13-0, and 0, I believe uh, you can't do any better than that. And I think it's... It's not right to penalize a team because their quarterback is injured. Yeah, obviously they won't be the same, but the team earned all 13 wins, not just the quarterback. And to leave them out, I think, is a, a miscarriage of justice. And I was thinking back to, you know, they're leaving out a team because their quarterback is injured. The most dominant college football player I think I've ever seen was Pittsburgh's defensive end or lineman, Hugh Green. Mm -hmm. I believe it was 1980. That was the year that Georgia was voted national champs, but to my eyes, Pittsburgh was the best college team I've ever seen. I believe they had five guys who went on to become not only NFL players, but NFL Hall of Famers. So I'm thinking back and, and, and thinking, if they apply that to today, would they leave a team out of the the 14 playoff if their most dominant player was a defensive guy uh -huh. and when i say dominant i once saw him against syracuse sack the quarterback three straight times and then block the punt and you can't get uh -huh. more dominating than that so uh, the florida state situation really really uh bothers me but i think it's um emblematic of, of something that has played college football i guess since its beginnings that there has never been a level playing field. Always the rich and the powerful stomp on the small guys. You can go back to the beginning of the 1900s when Teddy Roosevelt was president and college football was scandalous and he threatened to ban the sport unless the colleges got together and formed some kind of governing body, which became the NCAA. But for 120 years, the schools have tried to declaw the NCAA, and they've pretty much succeeded. So now you have chaos. Uh, it's not only this playoff uh, um, omission, but it's also NIL and the transfer portal. And you know things are bad when college football says, oh, Congress, can you help us? <laughs> the do-nothing Congress is really going to straighten out college football? I, I doubt it. I so doubt it um, that brings us all the way back to you know, the Florida State of Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Of course, in the uh, 
bylaws or whatever, the criteria for selection, it says that you can judge a team based upon the fact that maybe one of their key players is out. So maybe the committee went by, you know, looked at that and said, yeah, we should probably leave them out then. Yeah, I, I just I just don't like the idea. It's a team sport, and they did everything they were supposed to do. Uh, I, I cannot believe, you know, this is a major college team. It's not like a TCU or a Boise State or a Fresno that have, um, you know, had success. Uh, this is Florida State. Uh, you know, there's a couple of decent teams in the ACC, Clemson, Miami, on occasions, but Florida State did what they were asked to do, and I don't believe they should be omitted. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of, they at least people say they're looking to perhaps exit the ACC after this year or in a year or two. So we'll see well, what happens. If it, if it was up to me, uh, I, I think the big problem, I don't know if I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here and where you want to go with this, but I would love to see college football follow the NFL model. The NFL is 32 teams, and for over 60 years, the, the primary thing of the NFL is it is uh, totally socialistic. Not saying that we should live by socialism, uh -huh. but the NFL does operate by those principles, and the first and foremost is they share all the TV money. So everybody starts off with the same pot of money. And I think if college decided, well, we have 80 teams or we have 96 teams, let's divide it into uh, eight, eight conferences of 12 teams or five conferences of 16 teams, let's start out the 80 or the 96 with the same television money and compete from there. You can, you know, if you have a 100,000-seat stadium and you fill it every week, you're going to make more than the team with a 50,000-seat stadium. Mm -hmm. And... I just think college has never had a level playing field where everybody plays the same amount of games, the same amount of league games, the same amount of games home and away like the NFL and frankly like all professional sports leagues do. The pros are much more honest than college. And if you want to look ahead to next season, Michigan and Ohio State each have eight home games. Now, they're not all... Uh, Big Ten games, but that gives them a lot more revenue to bring in when you have eight home games compared to, let's say, six. And I just would love to see somehow, some way, college get to leveling the playing field. Of course, part of that has to do with the strong governing body, which college football has never had. Uh, yesterday, I think, uh, as we speak uh, here in uh, mid-December, the uh, NCAA came out with a proclamation that uh, NIL was okay, essentially uh, saying what everybody's been doing is okay. So, you know, uh, until you get somebody at the top who can really make things happen, such as this level playing field, I think it's going to be a problem. Yeah, I mean, you, you now have NIL and you have the transfer portal, and I think the NCAA said, Oh, they would be okay with NIL if each school sets up a trust fund so the money goes to the trust fund. So you could actually have money coming from an NIL-type sponsor going into a school's trust fund for that player while that player is moving to another school. And it, it just seems like it'll be even more of a mess. And um, I don't know if, if when, you, when you sign your scholarship, should you be obligated for a certain amount of years? 
if you have an NIL deal, should that obligate you for more than one year at a time? Um, there's a lot of questions and an awful lot of uh, loopholes and potential for all sorts of confusing situations beyond what we have now. As many have said, it really is the wild, wild west, and it hasn't calmed down at all in the past year or so. You talked about, or mentioned at one time, that the big games in college football are on ESPN and not on the mothership on ABC. Uh, why do you suppose they're not, not doing that? This is a, this is a showcase event. Yeah, I've, I've been wondering about that, and I looked at the ratings for the last Super Bowl and the last uh, college football championship. The Super Bowl got, I think, a, a rating of 40 and 113 million viewers. The college championship, which ended up Georgia and TCU, got an, uh, a rating of 8 and 17 million viewers. So the Super Bowl had about almost 10 times as many sets of eyeballs watching as the college championship. And then this past weekend, you see all the conference championships, or at least most of them were on ABC, a few were on ESPN. It is the same company, um, and I don't know. The college championship is on a Monday night. I don't think ABC is any super blockbuster programming uh -uh. Um, that would, would score higher than, than the, the college championship. But again, if it comes down to getting the most eyeballs, uh, broadcast is always going to get more than cable. Now, ESPN basically owns all the bowl games, and I think what they have done is, is packaged it with the advertisers so that uh, most of the bowl games are on ESPN, a couple are on ABC, and I, I think they just want to do that to drive up the rating on ESPN to get maybe as high as they possibly can for a cable audience. But in terms of just people watching a game, you're definitely going to get more for the Super Bowl than any college game, and you're definitely going to get more on broadcast than cable. So something just doesn't seem right when you're talking about getting the maximum amount of viewers for a game. Speaking of pro football, it seems like a bit of a travesty that a team like the Falcons, they most likely will win their division. I mean, talk about something wrong. <laughs> do, do, is there a way to fix something like that? You know what? I, that doesn't really bother me. It's just the division is bad, mediocre to bad, and the Falcons are the best of a bad bunch for now. You know, by the end of the year, their, their record might be, what is it, six and six? Six and six speak? now. Yeah, yeah right. it might, you know, it might look a lot better. It could be 11 and six. I'm not thinking it's going to be, but certainly that would look better. Um, I, I don't think that's a problem. I think in the pro leagues, you're playing the same amount of games, home and away. It's just the roll of the dice. I think it's just the way it worked out. I mean, it's happened. We've seen it in baseball, how wild card teams have advanced and won the World Series. But I think you're starting from an honest, level playing field and getting there. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not bothered by it. Yeah. Let's switch to basketball. Again, another new wrinkle this year in the NBA, and that's this in-season tournament, which, as we speak, I think is coming to a culmination pretty soon. But, uh, yes, and I have, not, I have not heard one person talk about it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> among, among my friends who are moderate to rabid sports fans, 
you know, people who are soccer fans uh, are used to this sort of thing, this in-season tournament or tournaments from outside the league they normally play in, but uh, amongst just general sports fans I have heard is zero, absolutely zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't. I think it's still an NBA game. It's NBA teams that play each other regularly or at least see each other once, twice a year, however the schedule is arranged. So I don't think there's anything very unique to it except all of a sudden you're packaging something within. It oh. just it just doesn't do it for me. Uh, and I'm guessing that's pretty much the way it goes for everybody because I hear nothing about it. Now you did the Bullets games at one time. How different was the NBA back then than it is now? Oh, interesting question. Of course, zone defense was not allowed. Mm -hmm. Um, The NBA then, every team uh, tried to have a low post player. And I think the offenses were were a little bit more interesting back then. Maybe the game was a little slower, but you could see you could see things develop. And uh, the three-point shot, let's see, when did the three-point shot come to the NBA? Um, Started in the ABA. I can't even remember. I'm talking 82, 83. I don't know if we had it then, but um, I I like the way the offenses were structured then. You could dribble a ball, go behind the screen, take a shot. Now I think everything is is, um, pick and rolls all over the place. And there's no defined low post game for a lot of teams. I don't know. It just it just doesn't look quite as interesting uh-huh. uh, to me. I see a lot of that in football too. It's virtually every team in football, NFL and college, has the quarterback and a shotgun. And prior to the snap, a guy comes in motion between the quarterback and the center. I mean, that must be 95% of plays. Uh, you don't see as much interesting formations, uh, shifts like you used to. You don't see any any choreography in the backfield like you used to when the backs were behind the quarterback. Now you see the quarterback ride the ball into the stomach of a, of a back, uh-huh. the lone back, much like you did in auction football. And it just seems like there's so much of the sameness all the way around. So I miss kind of the choreography in the backfield. Recent games over the past weekend, I saw teams that would shift three players uh, to the tight end and like the H-back, and that was a little bit more interesting than I've been seeing all year long. Uh-huh. So um, yeah, I, I kind of I get into the, um, the choreography of, of the way the games play out. I like to see that. What do you think of the way backs are being pushed into the end zone or pushed to, for a first down. Do you buy that? Yeah, you see it occasionally, and it it kind of looks it kind of looks like schoolyard or like my grandkids playing. Um, yeah, it, it it takes away from some of the uh, the professionalism. It just looks very amateurish. Um, you know, kind of like a scrum. Uh, I don't know if that something you see regularly in rugby, but it just. It just takes away. Of course, I'm the person who thought that when they went to the shotgun in pro and college football, that took away from a lot of the the beauty. I mean, growing up, we used to play, I grew up in New York City, and when you play touch football, they called it association football, where 
One guy handed the ball to the quarterback and everybody else ran out in a pass pattern. And then occasionally we'd get to play a, a tackle football game and it was really exciting to line up behind the center and get a snap and, you know, hand it off or, or whatever. And occasionally we'd play like that and we'd have the shotgun. That's because you had people who couldn't block. Uh-huh. And I remember in the NFL, the shotgun was an omission that your, your offensive line was terrible. Late in his career, Y.A. Tittle with the Giants was getting pounded, and out of desperation, the New York Giants went to a shotgun, and that was like admitting, we can't block to protect this old aging quarterback. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, you know, the shotgun becomes the formation 98% of the time. I think uh, the 49ers, I think Joe Montana never took uh, a snap from the shotgun, Uh always behind the center. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Steve Young as well, but then it changed, and the whole game changed. Mm-hmm. You know what, Gary? You know what I'm trying to figure out? Mm-hmm. One thing changed. Things change sometimes in sports, and everybody follows. Remember uh, in the high jump, Dick Fosbury? Oh, yeah. The Fosbury flop? Fosbury flop, yep. And suddenly, everybody went to that. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, Pete Gogolak was the first soccer-style kicker in America. Mm-hmm. He was at Princeton, his brother Charlie was at Columbia, and there was another guy, he was at a local high school in Brooklyn, uh, not far from my house. There were three kickers in America, two in college, one in high school, who were the only soccer-style kickers around, and before you knew it, everybody was doing it. But here, here's what I'm trying to figure out. A few years ago, the holder on a, on a field goal or an extra point, the holder, if you were holding for a right-footed kicker, you always had your left knee down and your right leg extended. Uh-huh. And you had two hands that were reaching out to get the snap from the center. Okay. All of a sudden, somebody changed that. And now the right knee was down, the left knee was up, there was no more reaching, and, and the holder would still put the ball down with his right hand. Uh-huh. But I can't figure out who was the guy who did that that everybody copied. Huh. <laughs> I have no Think idea. Think about that. That's, yeah, that's... Think about that. One guy did it, and the rest and of the world else, followed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder what Lou Groza would have thought of all this. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I remember seeing Lou the Toe yep. Groza. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned him, and of course his brother was Alex, yep. who was a college basketball player at Kentucky, who was caught up in the, those uh, scandals of the early 50s. Uh-huh. And of course, Lou was a straight-on kicker. And yeah, Lou the toe. I don't know if he had the distance that some, I'm sure he kicked a 50-yard field goal from time to time. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure he ever went that far. Of course, maybe Tom right. Dempsey went 64 Six, yards yeah. straight on. That was the record for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both the NFL and college have a real problem with what is a catch? What is a catch and what is a forward pass? And I think if you look at the physics of it, it's very easy to determine. Unfortunately, they've written the rules that take away the simplicity of the eyeball test and the physics. If a guy throws you a pass, if you're the receiver, Gary, and you jump up and raise your hands as high as you can over your head, and with two hands, you pluck or snatch the ball out of the air, Uh and then pull it 
as you land, you pull it down to your waist. That is a catch. I don't care what happens after that. That is a catch. Because if you jumped up and outstretched your arms and the ball went right over or through your hands without you touching it, that ball would travel probably another 10 yards before it hit the ground. So are you telling me that a ball that is being thrown probably 60 miles per hour that is spiraling through the air, that is being plucked cleanly out of the air with two hands and then brought from that flight down to somebody's waist, how can that not be a catch? Mm -hmm. I do not understand all the language that says, then you must run two steps or perform a football act. Yeah. No. I don't a get catch it. is a catch. Yeah. And what happens later has to be a fumble. And the other part of that is the quarterback. Right. See, I saw it in the Washington-Oregon game, and then it happened in one of the pro games. If the quarterback has the ball, if, if when you grip a football and you reach your hand back to throw, the point of the football that's going to travel forward is actually pointing backwards until your arm comes forward, comes past your your helmet, past your face mask, then the front of the ball, the point is facing forward. But you can complete the entire throwing motion with the ball in your hand, follow through completely, and not throw the ball. You can fake it. Mm -hmm. But yet, with the ball way behind your head, if the hand is coming forward, the hand and arm one inch forward, you're seeing calls where the ball is knocked out of the quarterback's hand called a forward pass because the arm came forward one inch. It's two feet behind the quarterback's head, but the arm came forward one inch, and even though the ball is knocked out of the hands, they're calling that a forward pass? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think any ball that's in the hand of the quarterback, in the hand, should always be a fumble. Never be a forward pass. Mm. Always a fumble. And then you wouldn't have the crazy language that makes what is obvious uh, no longer obvious. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that uh, several instances this year. So Every week you see yeah. it again and again. So what I'm saying is you can totally go through the entire throwing motion and not throw the ball. And then, you know, if the ball's knocked out of your hands, then it's going to be a fumble. Yeah. So how could it be a pass when it's two feet behind the quarterback? Mm -hmm. Interesting discussion, that's for sure. Let's uh, let's move on to baseball. I guess you're in my favorite sport, and it uh, was an interesting year uh, in the major leagues for a number of reasons. First of all, we had all these rule changes. So, how do you assess that? Do you think that was a plus for uh, baseball? Yeah, I love the the speed up rule, the pitching rule with the timing that cut down on the batters stepping out and adjusting their gloves and going through all of that stuff. The pickoff throws to first base, yeah. You didn't see too many instances where the pitcher threw over twice because then the runner would have a great advantage on the third one. I don't, I don't think the increased size of the bases made really any impact. I don't think it made Ronald Acuna try to steal more bases. Uh, I'm sure in a couple of those instances, it probably did help. But the one thing in the postseason, I can't remember which game it was, 
But the idea that there are some plays that can be replayed and some that cannot be makes no sense. If you have the replay, use it uh-huh. for every incident where there's some question. There was one game where a ball was hit foul up the first baseline. The ball then came back in fair territory, crossed over the bag. The first baseman caught it. It was clearly a fair ball. He caught it, stepped on the base, and they called it a foul ball. Mm. And I said, oh, just replay it. And they said they couldn't use the replay in this instance. And I'm going, why? Why? And along those lines, the whole idea of challenges I think that's that's become a waste of time, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, just replay anything that's in doubt and not go through this silly challenge uh, process. Just get it right is is what I'd like to see. Use it, you know, use it every single time. Get it right. As long as it's, uh, you know, something that is really in question, because I, I could see some saying, well, this is really going to slow up the game again. I mean, you made some progress, but now you're replaying every every incident, basically. Well, I think most of the replays you can decide pretty quickly. Yeah, and in baseball, to me, the, the uh, toughest call is the check swing. Mm. The check swing. And I think... I think they should simplify that and, and decide the bat, if the bat is totally over the plate and is um, parallel like to the front of the plate. In other words, if the bat is across the plate and the ball doesn't make contact with the bat, but the bat was across the plate, I think that should be a strike. The arguing about did his hands come forward, did the bat come forward, just make that a strike. Yeah, there, there's talk about speeding up the game even further, I believe, reducing the 20 seconds to 18 seconds with runners not on base. Uh, I, think, I don't think that's necessary. Okay. I think it's, it's pretty good now. It's a real good pace now. And, you know, what, what also changed the game that isn't talked about a whole lot is relief pitchers having to face three batters. Mm. I think that's been pretty, pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think the thing about baseball that... Some of the technology has demonstrated. I love when they they take three pitches and uh, show the ball coming, uh, being thrown by the pitcher, and as it approaches the plate, the path. The fastball takes one path, the breaking ball takes another, and the splitter or any pitch that tumbles takes a different path. And I think the key to being an effective pitcher now in the major leagues is to have a pitch that tumbles because it is impossible to be geared to hit a 90 plus fastball and then drop your hands down to hit a ball that tumbles straight down impossible you'd have to be swinging six to eight inches below where you see it and i don't think uh anybody any batter can do that well i was watching the mlb network this morning and they were showing cody bellinger who his last year with the Dodgers was not very good. I think he batted 150 or something like that. Last year with the Cubs, he raised the average to 240 or whatever. Anyway, he's kind of getting back to his old self. And they showed a comparison of how he was hitting. And the change he made, he stood up straighter, I think, was the big thing. And I can't remember, there's one other adjustment he made. It's interesting how these subtle little things can make a huge difference. 
And I guess that's why baseball is such an incredible sport if you really get into it. Yeah, and I, I'm surprised you don't see more batters move way up in the box, which makes a fastball faster. However, it, it takes away that late tumble action uh-huh. in the last foot and a half. Uh-huh. And, and as somebody who's done a lot of amateur pitching, when that batter is way up in the box, suddenly you as the pitcher, you get a little bit, I don't want to say intimidated, but that batter appears a lot closer. It's almost like moving the, uh, the one pin in bowling about six inches forward. Uh-huh. Suddenly, the target you're throwing to looks different. It, does, it definitely uh-huh. looks different. I think some batters would really uh, upset pitchers by moving way up in the box and taking away that late tumble. I think that that's the other thing that Bellinger did, I think. At least he widened his stance a little bit. So, you know, like I said, little things make a difference. What about robot umpires? We didn't talk about that. Is that something you like? yeah. I think I must be the only person in the last 10 years who said, why don't we just have home plate umpires? Umpires who do nothing but call balls and strikes. Because the way it is now in a four-man umpiring crew, you rotate. So every fourth game, the worst of the ball strike umpires will be behind the plate. You know, if you're playing a four-game series, you're guaranteed to get that guy at least, you know, one time. Uh, But I don't understand in an era of specialization why we just can't have the best ball and strike umpires doing every game uh-huh. yeah you have to hire more people but why not why not get the best uh nobody that i've heard besides me has talked about just ball and strike umpires interesting and the other thing too is i think the first base umpire is always out of position by being up the line and calling a bang bang play at first base because in, invariably, inevitably, when they show the replay, the best angle is like from the second baseman's perspective, where you see the ball entering the first baseman's glove and you see the runner's foot at the bag. But the umpire basically has to guess when the ball disappears that the ball is in the glove and, and cleanly possessed. And, and he's watching the player's foot. So I don't know why in those plays at first, the umpire at first doesn't instinctively or automatically slide toward second base to get a better angle of both. But doesn't the first base, first base umpire react to the sound of the ball hitting the mitt? You, you really can't hear the sound. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I play first base a lot. Sometimes it doesn't even make a sound. Uh-huh. You know, it's rare that a ball will rattle around in the first baseman's glove, uh-huh. but you definitely can see the ball entering the glove if you're over towards second base. What do you think happened to uh, the Braves and the Dodgers this year? I mean, they were the maybe the odds-on favorites at one time, but it didn't happen well, for them in the postseason. Well, to me, the layoff, when you, mm-hmm. when you got the bye in what, whatever round it was, that was the key. Plus, the Braves had a big, comfortable lead for the last month, Uh And um, I think it's natural in any sport when you have a lead, you you take your foot off the gas a little bit. You don't concentrate as much. 
I think those were two contributing factors. Yeah. The long lead in September and then the layoff. Baseball is an everyday sport. It's the most habitual sport of all. The players are the most habitual athletes of all. And when you don't, you take a week off. I remember going out to one of those um, open simulated games, and it just wasn't the same. Hmm. Interesting. It was not yeah. the same. Yeah. That's what um, Snit was hoping would uh, keep them kind of, you know, in the groove, but apparently it didn't work. No, I think the fact you're not playing every day and, uh, you know, bad habits creep in or your timing, you know, everybody sees things the same. We all see, but our brains don't recognize what we're seeing the same. I play a lot of you know, amateur baseball when people have been out or away and they come back to play and they go, oh, my timing's off. I'm just not seeing the ball. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I always say to them, it's not that you're not seeing it. It's your brain isn't recognizing what you're seeing and how to act as a result of that. So it's not just a pure vision, but it's the recognition and, and the follow through. And I think even when you take, what is it, five, six, seven days off, mm -hmm. that has a big effect on a baseball player, mm -hmm. hitting wise. Yeah. Final question. The Hall of Fame uh, recently elected Jim Leland, but left out a couple of key guys, Pinella being one, and of course, Bill White. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I thought Bill White was the biggest oversight. I mean, Leland definitely deserved it, but Bill White has a, a career that I don't think anybody will replicate in that he was a very good uh, major league first baseman. Then for years, he was a broadcaster with the Yankees, mm -hmm. and then he became the president of the National League. I mean, that's a unique uh, baseball career. Uh -huh. And I, I think he missed by, what, one or two votes at yeah. the most of this committee. Uh -huh. But if I could sneak in one thing, Gary, about the Hall of Fame, the regular voting, right. not, not the players or the, the manager-umpire category. Since the Hall of Fame started, the voting is done by baseball writers. Uh -huh. Writers and writers only. And... No broadcaster has a vote. And I have been in many a press box, and I love the writers and the work they do. But for years, I've watched writers not watching the game, uh -huh. sitting there typing their stories. Now, of course, on laptops, working on features, working on other things. And I know as a broadcaster, you'd watch every single pitch. You see where a player was positioned before every single pitch. You saw how far a center fielder would have to range how far he'd have to go, how fast he'd have to go, and the writer's not even watching that. Uh -huh. And and it kind of bothers me that the people who watch the game most closely, most intensely, have no vote. Uh -huh. um, I just think there needs to be the uh, broadcasters who see the games every day be included in the vote. Now there are writers who don't even who have a vote who never even show up. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, the one thing that I think is better than back in back in the day, as they say, is that with interleague play, writers get to see more players from different teams, and therefore have a at least, you know, perhaps a little better view of what's going on. But I agree, the broadcasters are the ones who really know what's happening. Yeah, I mean, you're assuming the writer is watching. Yeah, but right. he might be in the press box 
typing a feature or doing some online uh, segment of his total job now. Uh-huh. So let the people who are watching the games as close as possible have some input in the voting. Uh-huh. I think you know it doesn't have to be 50-50, but have, have a good number of broadcasters and alternate them, you know, because broadcasters are working usually for a team, but then writers are assigned to a team. So I, I think there's room for both in the overall voting, and I think it would be beneficial to all baseball fans. Is there a favorite broadcaster you have, having been one at one time, but uh, in today's markets, maybe a, a local broadcaster, not counting Costas, who we all think is the dean, and he's also your friend, so we'll leave him out, but any local broadcasters who really stand out for you? Well, um, you know, because I watch all different sports, I think another guy who is a friend of mine, Sean McDonough, is probably the best all-around play-by-play guy we have and have had for 20 years now. I mean, he he started out in baseball. I think he did World Series for Uh CBS. He does college football and college basketball. He does the NHL now. He's done lacrosse, a game that, that I started doing, and maybe even Sean learned something from me doing it. But, I mean, he is far and away the most versatile all-around guy, and he's always interesting, and he's not afraid to, you know, put something out there. So for me, he is very, very good. I know any game he's doing, I will enjoy listening to Absolutely. Yeah, he's, he's very smooth, and he's been doing it for quite a while, and we hope he continues for quite a while. He, is he a Syracuse guy, too? Yes, he is. Yeah. And his dad was a great sports writer, Will McDonough, oh, yeah. with the Boston Globe. Mm-hmm. Yep, there you go. Well, this has been terrific. As always, Dave, we could go on forever, but uh, time has expired, shall we say. This is our last uh, podcast for the year, and I want to thank all our listeners in the U.S. and overseas. We actually have some listeners in Germany and places like that. Uh, We wish you all a happy holidays, and uh, we hope you enjoyed today's show, and that you'll be back in January. We'll have some other great guests coming up in uh, 2024. Our guest today has been Dave Cohen. Dave, thanks again. Thank you. I'm Gary McKillops, and this has been Sports Across the Board. You've been listening to Sports Across the Board. Join us next time as we take you behind the scenes on everything from the big events and the big issues to discoveries that are changing the world of sports. Sports Across the Board is an exclusive presentation of the McKillops Group. If you like what you've heard, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.